Welcome to the first of a series of podcasts from the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL, where we look at the careers and work of some of the unit's staff. I'm here with Patrick Royston, who has recently won the State of Journal Editor's Prize for 2016. We're here to learn about what he's done in his career and glean wisdom for younger statisticians in particular. My name's Tim Morris, interviewing Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Tim. Nice to be here. So Patrick uh, is a medical statistician who has been a medical statistician for over 40 years. He works at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL and has done for, oh, I don't know, about 15 years now? Originally the MRC Clinical Trials Unit, yes. 2000 I started. So, Patrick, I'd like to ask you, well, many questions about your career, but first of all about your early career, and I understand that you didn't originally intend to be a medical statistician. No, that's correct. I I started uh, my postgraduate life as a, as a pure mathematician, actually, at Warwick University. Got my master's for there. Then I cast around, what should I do now? Usual problem at the end of a master's. Mathematics is far too hard for me to do a PhD in, so I decided I'd take an easier route, it seemed, become a maths teacher, which I did. That didn't work out well, and at the end of one term, I decided, well, this isn't for me. I'm going to do something completely different. So I actually um, moved from the Midlands to London to take up a job with what was then called the post office or the general post office, the GPO, but the telecommunications side of it. So I worked in tele- tele-traffic theory for about four years, and at that point I said, well, okay, actually what I'm really interested in is medical statistics, because I've always had an interest in medicine, and I thought, well, statistics is an interesting area, and I'd actually been able to study it by evening class in what was then called Polytechnic of Central London, now called the University of Westminster, which is a terrific uh, advantage to be able to do that. So finally, in 1977, I moved to the Medical Research Council's Clinical Research Centre at Harrow, uh, basically with a role to do consulting in statistics for medical people with studies to either design or analyse or generally advise on. How did that work in your first job? Well, it was quite an interesting experience, um, never having done that before. I mean, I knew obviously from my academic training, something about statistics, but actually applying statistics to real studies is, is a completely different ballpark. Um, and one of the things I learned earlier on, early on, is which has two parts. One is that clinicians who are doing research generally don't have the right question in mind. They, have, they haven't really thought it through. They just think oh, they want to show something is significant or something like this. So the first thing I kind of learned and discussed quite a bit with my colleagues was you have to frame the right question. So in interviewing these guys, and not only men, um, it was important to try and tease out of them what they were really trying to do as opposed to what they thought they were trying to do. Did that plant any seeds? Do you still work in any of the areas that you worked in then, or did that kick um, anything off in your career? No, I mean, I think really that was, apart from giving me a terrific hands-on training in applied statistics, um, I don't, I don't really think any of the projects that I was involved with then have really carried forward to the present day. Mm-hmm. More, as I say, an approach to work and approach to statistics was what was very important for me at that stage. You did move from a, a much more applied job to things which were more about the statistical methods people were using. Yes. How did that start? Well, it's hard. It's hard to say exactly what the origin of that was. 
I was always interested somehow in continuous variables in statistics. And even when I was working for the GPO, I was interested in the normal distribution for some reason. <laughs> I thought it was a very beautiful thing. And so kind of thinking about the underpinnings of some of the, some of the things that we do as statisticians, I guess, led, led to an interest in developing solutions to where there weren't any obvious solutions already. It kind of stemmed from that, and I gradually, as time went on, I found myself wanting to find s solutions to practical problems that weren't necessarily available off the shelf, as it were. So you've just mentioned continuous covariates, yes. and that leads me nicely into talk about <laughs> fractional polynomials, which, of course, you're well known for your paper, your, the original paper on fractional polynomials with Doug Altman. Yes. Had that been in the pipeline for a long time? Well, it's interesting. The, it, in a way, this did arise dire directly or semi-directly from a practical project. We were faced with the problem of how to describe fetal growth in a parsimonious and, re and reliable way. And what that meant was that we, ha we had a number of measurements, usually several hundred, sometimes thousands of measurements on fetuses in, in utero at different gestational ages. And the idea was to produce an estimate of the distribution of that given gestational age. Mm -hmm. The motivation clinically, of course, was to see whether any, any influence of growing badly or growing particularly large during pregnancy. It's been quite an important aspect of medical care in pregnancy. So one of the key tasks there was to model the mean of the fetal size, or the number of different variables, as a function of gestational age. Can, and of course it had to be a continuous function, because growth is continuous usually, or generally it is. Um, we cast around at the time, when I say we, I mean me and Doug Altman basically were working on this together, for suitable functions that could do this. And we couldn't find anything that was really doing the job well and in a parsimonious and describable way. And eventually we, we, we hit on the idea of, well, polynomials are a good start, but are they flexible enough? And it kind of went from there. Mm. And I seem to remember we actually started with a model which, which had linear and cubic terms only. And that seemed to fit very well for some particular fetal size measurement. And so we kind of started doing this in a very ad hoc way. And gradually, over time, we realized that with more experience and more examples, this was actually quite a powerful way of modeling. Mm. And so I guess fractional polynomials, I think it was probably Doug's idea originally, actually. <laughs> I think it wasn't, don't think it was my idea. Well, it was a joint idea. Uh, the formalization of it later on was, was down to me, I think I can say quite fairly. To, you know, from the basic idea, some kind of think, well, should we transform rather than in a different way from standard polynomials? That kind of came from, from both of us together, and it got developed from there, really. Following Northwick Park, where did you move to then? The Clinical Research Centre had a checkered history, really, and had some problems, and following the review, it was decided after a number of years to close the, close the institute down. And I thought, well, rather than stay to the bitter end, I thought I'd rather actually move on. So I moved from there in 88 to um, St. Bartholomew's Medical College, where I worked with Professor Nicholas Wald um, as a statistician there, uh, lecturer in statistics. And we were mainly working on Down syndrome screening, and there were a number of other um, screening type projects going on. The Down syndrome one was the one I was most involved with. Mm. Um, and I was preceded actually by Simon Thompson in that, in that place, in that place. So he and I both had done quite a bit of work on, uh, at Barts, on the screening issue. How do you screen fetuses actually for having Down syndrome? Is there anyone that, there was a number of different 
measurements that could indicate that. Mm -hmm. um, and this was worked up into a quite a relatively rather complicated multivariate risk estimation, okay. which we eventually published in Statistics and Medicine as a methodological project as well. And so was this then used in practice? It has, been used, it has been used in practice. I think it was commercialized and made into a you know, patented product of some kind. It has been used. I think it's the, the science of that has now moved on further. Mm -hmm. um, so other, I think other methods are used. But the basic idea is, is, is still right. Mm -hmm. It still applies. Okay. And so after working at Bart's, where did you move to? Well, I stayed at Bart's um, a relatively short time, just over a year, a bit over a year. And I got offered a more senior post at, at um, the Royal Postgraduate Medical School at Hammersmith Hospital. Mm -hmm which was a job mixing consulting work and methodological work. I was getting a more of an interest in developing methodological solutions, partly driven by fractional polynomials, but other things as well. And that became part of the role that I needed to, to do. So that was, um, I moved there in 1989, um, and I continued there for just over 11 years. I was gradually um, developing my interest in modelling, particularly in prognostic factors modelling, which is, again, involving continuous variables and um, the need to provide good solutions that were robust and reliable and informative. And multivariable fraction polynomials turned out to be quite successful in that role. Mm. So that's where I started to work with my colleague from Germany, Fidi Saubrei, who works at the University of Freiburg, it's still there. Um, we met in the German city of Münster in about uh, March 1994, that was the first time we ever met. And Willi said to me, oh, I've been reading this paper of yours with Doug Altman, I think this looks quite interesting. <laughs> he said, well the first time I read it through I didn't understand it at all. And then I, I looked at some of the graphs and I thought, well there might be something in this. So he, he looked at it again and decided there probably was something in it and we kind of, our collaboration started from that point onwards. And it's still continuing to this day, actually. So one of your other successful collaborations has been with Paul Lambert on flexible parametric survival models. Yes. Can you tell me how that came about? Well, <coughs> flexible parametric survival models arose from my work on prognostic models, but also particularly with dissatisfaction with the Cox model as a complete descriptor of survival data. The main problem there is that we don't estimate the hazard function, the baseline hazard within a Cox model that becomes what they call partialed out. So the model itself does not give you the basic risk function, if you like, over time. So I was puzzling on this about this problem around about the turn of the millennium, I suppose, and eventually came along the, came on the idea that um, you could model the baseline, which is, for example, the log cumulative hazard function. Um, as a, quite nicely as a spline function. It was a very smooth function of time. So splines can accommodate that quite nicely. And so the idea was then to build that into a parametric model and estimate everything by maximum likelihood, which we duly did. I was working partly with uh, Max Palmer, and he encouraged me to think further about this problem. We published a paper in 2002 on this. And a little later on, Paul Lambert picked up this, uh, this technique and noticed the paper and thought this was quite interesting. He also used this methodology and found it very helpful, particularly with time-dependent effects of covariates, um, in, in modelling and deriving important estimation from 
cancer trial, cancer survival data, as I just said, usually from registries, large mm. data sets. Uh, I became aware of this, and I thought, well, this topic is quite rich. It's probably worth trying to write a book about it. So I thought, I'm, I, Paul is, an, is a very good statistician and knows quite a lot about survival, and I thought it was an ideal collaboration to, to try and produce such a book. He was a bit shocked when I suggested it. We did agree to do that, which was good, and the book was published in 2011, mm -hmm. um, and it sold quite a lot of copies since then, so we've been quite pleased. It's a stator book. So everything has been done in Stata for this. It's all been done in Stata, although I do understand there is actually a, a, a quite a good R implementation of these models as well, so they're not just in Stata now. So that's not your only book, and you also have a book on fractional polynomials. That's How correct. did that one come about? Did you have to convince Vili? <laughs> well, that was interesting, yes. I mean, Vili and I had worked together already for quite a number of years before it occurred to me again that this would be worth, could be worth this large body of work by this stage could be worth putting together as a, as a book. Well, I first suggested to Vili, well, why don't we book a, write a book about fraction polynomials? And he thought, actually, what I really would like to write, he was a bit shocked to be even asked to write a book. But anyway, um, get, having got over the initial shock, he thought about it, and he said, well, actually, what's really important from my point of view, and I came to agree with him, was the application of fraction polynomials in multivariable models, where you've got a number of continuous and other types of covariants. So we, we decided, after having discussed this uh, for a little while, we decided that the focus we wanted was multivariable models, which is basically models for observational data. Mm -hmm. And it was that, that motivation that led to the way the book was written. And I hope, to, I hope that the book is you know, quite balanced in that regard. It doesn't say fractional polynomial modeling is the only way to do this, but it's certainly one that seems to work quite well in a, a fair number of cases. So the book was eventually published after about four years of writing, I suppose it was published in uh, 2008 mm -hmm. by Wiley, and uh, we still find we use it, we still refer to it, and we still get useful information from it. So again, I think it's been a worthwhile enterprise, actually. Absolutely. So um, you've just mentioned clinical trials, and yeah. you work at a clinical trials unit. Mm -hmm. I understand one of your initial tasks when you arrived at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit, as it was then, was to work on multi-arm, multi-stage trials. Yes, that's correct, yes. I mean, I joined the, the Clinical Trials Unit in March 2000, as I think I've said already. And um, what I, as a methodologist, primarily, I wanted to find out what were the key issues that needed to work on in the unit. And it soon became clear on discussion with Max Palmer, who was head of the cancer group at that stage, that the so-called MEMS or multi-stage uh, multi-arm trial was something that needs some methodological development. It was invented intuitively by Mark and by Mark Grady and uh, Max Palmer, and actually in the first trial was implemented in ovarian cancer at Cycon Five, and it was quite successful um, in in the sense that a number of the arms were found to be less than effective on an intermediate outcome rather than a completely definitive outcome. And therefore, it was possible to, to actually stop recruitment of those arms early, which was the whole aim. If one could find uh, treatments that were not effective, then it would allow one to concentrate resources on those that were working. Um, so that was a kind of trailblazing trial, but it had virtually no mathematical backup around it at all, the design. It was, it was done intuitively. 
Um, and it was surprisingly successful considering that, which is probably a tribute to the experience and intelligence of the two, two inventors of it. But so I thought, well, actually, one thing we need to do here is to try and formalize this a bit. I don't mean in a strictly pure mathematics sense, but in such a way that it could be uh, could achieve some kind of respectability, which I think was quite important, really. So, you know, we, we set to work on that, and um, the first paper on that topic appeared in 2003, I think. So what did you see as the major issues at that time, the first things to work out? Well, trying to work out the, um, the operating characteristics of one of these complicated designs, where you've got two different outcomes going on at the same time. One, for intermediate screening of whether the results are giving, uh, whether treatments are giving advantages or not. Um, and then a definitive outcome. But also you've got all this in, interim looks at the data and how to deal with that, how to design the sample size and the, the actual looks of the data. Um, so we, we came up with the idea of um, regarding each intermediate look as a separate trial with its own characteristics. So in this, uh, of course, correlated going forward in time. Mm. But this was quite a fruitful way of actually describing the, 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 the trial design. And it was, this was eventually written up for a multi-stage two-arm trial, which is kind of the essence of this stuff. I can tell you that work still continues on some of the aspects of the methodology of these trials, including developing uh, computing solutions in Stata to help us design these trials rationally. So another area you've worked on in clinical trials methods is non-proportional hazards. Can you tell me how that started? Yes. Um, for a long time, uh, clinical trials with a time to event endpoint, such as death or progression-free survival, one of those sorts of things, those trials have always assumed that the treatment effect, let's say between two treatment arms, was proportional on the hazard scale. The advantage of that is it provides a nice simple summary of comparing two survival curves in a single number, and we do a test to tell us whether one treatment is significantly um, reducing the hazard compared with the other. Now that's been a, an absolute mainstay of um, clinical trial design and analysis of this sort for many years. But in recent times, things have crept a bit astray in the sense that, that we, found, we find increasing numbers of tri trials that show that the hazard ratio is not independent of time, it's not constant over time. If, for example, in some situations the, the treatment effect can wear off and after a number of years there is no treatment effect left, the, the hazard is not modified. Mm -hmm. That can be uh, discovered by post hoc analysis, but the question arises Supposing we've got non-proportional hazards of a rather extreme kind, can it actually affect the power of our test? Can we have even done our trial under the assumption of proportional hazards and actually found no treatment effect, which when you do the Kaplan-Meier plots of the survival functions, you can see is wrong. There was one particular paper that was published in the New England Journal, quite a high-profile paper, which showed very strongly non-proportional hazards of the treatment effect in two arms. And this is a lung cancer trial, as I recall. The authors nevertheless published a single hazard ratio with its confidence interval and p-value, and it's highly significant, and said, look, this, this treatment is better than the other one. But you could see from looking at the Kaplan-Myers that there was, this, there was this massive change over time in how the hazards were behaving. This uh, particular graph stimulated a number of researchers to write into the journal saying, what the hell's going on here? This is clearly not proportional. How can we summarize this with a hazard ratio? Since realizing that, I mean tossing around ideas to how we might get around that problem at the design stage, because with a trial, as you know, it's very important to try and specify initially 
what you think what you're going to do when certain things happen, and you don't want to leave it to um, post hoc data analysis to determine that. So I came up with the idea of trying to combine two tests, or more than two, basically two tests of the treatment effect, so that one could pick, the, in a sense, the, the better of the two. Mm. Combining, for example, the Cox proportional hazards model, is one standard thing which works best when you've got proportional hazards, very powerful then, with something which involves some, some estimate of the separation between the survival curves. And we worked with something called the restricted mean survival time, which seems quite suitable. So these two things can be uh, worked together um, with some um, empirical modeling to try and to make sure that the type 1 error rate is protected, is correct. And it also it, it allows you to cover, with a small increase in the sample size, under 10%, typically about 8%, you can cover yourself against some of the non-proportionality phenomena that can occur, that can actually re reduce the power of the Cox or the log-rank test quite a bit. So this has been published and we're still working on how important non-proportionality is in practical trials. And this is a project that's ongoing. We want to see how, how well the new method will perform in such trials. Mm. So one last theme I'd like to ask about is multiple imputation. Yes. You well, spent uh, probably a decade working quite actively in this area, uh, resulting yeah. in the hugely popular ICE command in Stata. Thank you. What, was your, what were the main things you found interesting about this area? Well, this is, again, a practical motivation. Um, I'd been involved with um, the analysis of prognostic factors data, as I mentioned, particularly continuous covariates. And one of the, the devils that you get with prognostic factor studies and observational studies in general, you may have a list of covariates that you have some data on, but they don't always have complete data. And in some extreme cases, you can have patches and holes in the data. That means you've got hardly any cases, observations with complete data. And so, well, this is a terrible waste. Why can't we do something with these, with these missing data? Independently, they recently, or fairly recently, published a method of coping with um, such missing covariate data, multiple imputation, but also a particular um, technique for doing this, a computational technique called, known as MICE, which means multiple imputation by chained equation. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this MICE idea looks quite nice as a means of getting sensible, essentially estimates, if you like, of the missing observations. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to try MICE out. It was implemented only in one package at the time, probably S+, which is a predecessor to R. And I thought, well, I'm not an S-plus programmer, what am I going to do? I want to use this method, so I decided to code it in Stata from scratch, which started quite a number of years ago now. After some work, I had a, a version of the Stata software that was working for me. Nobody else knew about this. It was only something I did for myself, basically, to, to enable me to do analyses that I couldn't otherwise do. So from that point, somebody asked me about this. I think it might have been Ian White asked me whether uh, I had such software that he's also a programmer and a user of Stata. So I said, oh yes, I've got something I've roughed up together, this does the job for us. And it kind of worked from there and um, eventually I wrote something which, with a name closer to MICE, which uh, was ICE, and that was published in the Stata Journal. It kind of hit a nerve, I think, because um, it got a lot of interest, a lot of downloads and a lot of questions. And in fact, we developed a course around it, did we not? Mm. multiple imputation, uh, which is still running today and still proving quite popular, I believe. Mm -hmm. But actually what happened then was that um, the, the ICE routine went through a number of uh, 
publications as more facilities were added and it was improved. And eventually Stata Core themselves thought, well, this is doing quite well. So I think we'll develop this for ourselves. So there were a couple of releases of Stata that actually uh, created and implemented a complete MI, multiple imputation suite, based around change equations. Must have been very satisfying. It, well, I was pleased. I was pleased to, it's, always, it's a good thing. If you write your own software, you know you're only an amateur programmer at the end of the day. It may be good, it may not be, but it's always better when the professionals get, get involved because they, they have a huge reputation to defend and they're very careful in what they do. Um, Ian White and myself had collaborated on this program, improving it and so on. And when they developed the multiple imputation suite called MI in Stata, they did consult Ian and me quite extensively. So we had a lot of input into that, which was very pleasing, actually. Mm. Well, we've talked about your Stata Journal Editor's Prize, which speaks of the amount of effort you've put into your state of programming and the amount of success that your programs have had. What made you get into programming and what got you into Stata? Well, that's going back a way. When I worked for the General Post Office, I was involved with programming mainframe computers in those days. So I learned, I, although I had learned Fortran at uh, university back in the 60s, would you believe, where I was working for the General Post Office, we used other languages. So I got quite interested in programming itself as, as an activity. It's quite an interesting thing. I found it enjoyable. I mean, that's all very well, you know, you program for a purpose, you don't necessarily program just for fun. Because I got this experience of writing programs, I actually wrote a statistics package for one of the very earliest personal computers called the Commodore PET, you may remember, you're probably too young to remember that, because that was in the 70s. That was the machine that came out after the first Apple computer appeared. So that kind of got me thinking later on, I discovered Stata actually through the through courtesy of Stephen Evans, and one of the nice things about this Stata program, it didn't have many commands at that stage, it was quite an early stage, but it did have a regression command and it did have a lovely high-resolution plot. So having high-resolution graphics fast and convenient was just a huge step forward. And having got started, as time went on, they developed it, developed it you know, quite rapidly. And without, within a short, shortish time, you could do programming in it. And the programming got better and better and better, you know, the programming facilities. And I thought, well, this is mm. actually a serious platform for solving, you know, the problem of if you've done some methodological work, you want it to be out there in the world, but it's never going to work, be in the world if there isn't any, any statistical programming tool to actually implement it. So that's the fundamental reason I always wanted to couple my whatever methodological work I did, I always wanted to write a program or a suite of programs so that people can use it. And I have focused on, on Stata partly because you get into the habit of doing these things, but it was, I, I think, a good choice. Although surgery is not used particularly widely in the academic world because it costs money, I guess, whereas R is free, nevertheless, o over the piece, it is. it does have a very wide distribution among researchers as well as some students and professionals. And so it's also much more user-friendly than, than the R package, I believe, and also because it's developed commercially, it's more stable. A lot of attention is paid to details, such as what they call version control, that allows you to work, run a program that was written under, let's say, version 3, still under version 14 of the package, it still works. So Stata has proved a very stable and a very reliable product over the years, which is why I still support it and work with it. So I think what you've just said is perhaps quite unusual in an era where people are under pressure to publish a lot of articles. Yeah to actually spend and invest time on Stata packages. 
Are you pleased that you've done that? Do you see it as worthwhile? Yes, I, I, do, I do, and I think you raised an important point. You know, there was always a lot of pressure to publish mythological papers if you're a statistician. Mm. And these are regarded as the ones with the highest kudos. And for a long time, people who wrote and published programs yeah, that implemented statistical procedures were regarded as not second rate or second string, but they weren't taken so seriously. They were just mm. regarded as some kind of technology which wasn't particularly creative. Mm. I think this is completely wrong, and I'm not the only one who's got that view, actually. So, you know, I think today there is more recognition of the importance of programming uh, in implementing statistical tools, partly because things have got so complex, we've had to have these mm. tools. But even so, there is a, it's almost a sort of mathematical snobbery that says that, you know, paper in, in Biometrica is worth 10 papers in the state of journal, you know, that sort of idea. Looking more generally at your whole career so far, is there any work that you feel particularly proud of? Well, I think actually the, 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 the work that uh, resulted in the two books is probably where I'm, uh, I'm quite happy about what, how that's gone. And, you know, it's, we're still developing it, so it's proved fertile. There was one project I could mention which goes right back to the 1980s, which was involved with um, mathematical techniques for determining the fertile phase in a woman. And this actually came as a result of a collaboration between a number of people, including myself, and uh, a scientist from the United States who was funded by the World Health Organization to come to Norfolk Park to a clinical research center and uh, work on this, pro on this project. An application of a statistical technique known as the QSIM to determine when the temperature rise in a woman occurred, which is associated with oculations. You know, we, we worked on this for over a number of years and produced um, quite a reliable algorithm that was eventually implemented in a device that could be used to signal these things. And you know, it was quite a long-term project. And I, I was, it was fun to do that, and it was very, very satisfying to collaborate with a really nice guy, actually, it's Robert M. Abrams from Florida. It actually resulted in my very first methodological paper in a journal, which is about determining, detecting the fertile period, and it was published in Biometrics in 1980. It's good to hear that you're still pleased with work that you did earlier in your career. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, dismiss it as being completely naive and hopeless. Can I ask if you have any advice you'd like you'd have for younger statisticians who are either beginning their career or early on in their career? I think there are a number of things one could say about that. I mean, just based on my own experience. The first thing I learned as a statistician in practical uh, medical context was to ask the right question. And that isn't always obvious, you know, sometimes the, the right question or the, the key question in a particular study is hidden. Mm -hmm. To try and think to yourself, well, what, what are this person really doing, and just to discuss it with them, get a handle on that, because without that you can't design a study properly, you can't analyse it properly. Another thing is, you know, not to be afraid to use approximate solutions to problems. So many of the things I worked on over the years, I now I recognise, have not been you know, something that would ever appear in the journal of pure mathematics. But nevertheless, they turn out to be useful. So you've got to have the confidence to say, well, intuitively this feels about right. It may not be completely perfect. So I, I would I would encourage people to, to have the courage to use things that aren't necessarily perfect. Mm. Those are two things, two of the things I've learned over the years. Thank you, Patrick, for talking to me, and thanks to the audience for listening to the first in a series of podcasts from the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. <laughs>